And welcome to episode 55 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, our respective vacations may be over, but before they ended, we had a chance to catch a movie about, I guess you could say, a very extreme vacation. Where do you go, Bernadette? But before we get to our review of that film, Scott, I'd love to hear how your trip to the Queen City went. The Queen City? Good one, Matt. Did you Google that, or did you actually know off the top of your head? Well, okay, so the thing is there's some debate about what the real Queen City is because both Charlotte, North Carolina, and Cincinnati uh, claim the title of Queen City. It's some kind, some sort of English history thing that uh, I'm not up to date on, but uh, no, I didn't Google it. I, I did happen to know that off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, it was good. I, you know, And you say Queen City dispute. I like both the cities. They can both have the title. It's fine. I, I agree. Uh, no. But yeah, no, I enjoyed my vacation. It was great. Uh, we go, my mom and I go every year to watch the tennis a lot of players lost early this year, which was a bit of a bummer. Yeah, I was noticing that. Yeah, but it was still a good time. Uh, we got to see, I mean, Djokovic made it to the semifinals, so it's not exactly losing early, but the final day was a bit of a dud. We were interested enough to go and watch a set of it, but we'd also been watching tennis all week, so we took a brief reprieve early, or an early reprieve, I should say, and uh, got out of the 94-degree heat because it was pretty brutal on the last mm. day. And uh, no, it was a great time, though. I'm feeling relatively refreshed but i'm also moving apartments this week so uh staying busy did i see where madison keys was in the final maybe for the women and she won oh well that's good that's exciting yeah her biggest uh title to date when i mean she lost to sloan stevens in the u.s open final a few years ago but yeah it was a it was a big win for her and now this week we have of course the winston-salem open going on of course not as big of a uh a tournament, but I noticed that I think Andy Murray maybe is playing and a couple other people who, I mean, Andy Murray's really like not even ranked anymore, I don't think, but a couple other notable players are going to be here in Winston-Salem. I think that's right. Yeah. They, they recently switched from the women this week, switched from New Haven to the Bronx, but I think they're still having the Winston-Salem tournament. So, you know, stop by, catch some tennis if you have the free time in your first week of law school. Yeah, I was about to say third, what free well, time. first week of the third year of law school. It's not the first week of law school for you, but how's that going? Well, today was my last first day of school. So, you know, big moment. I mean, it's about time, I guess. How many first days of school have I had now? Probably about 19 or 18 or 19. So uh, about time I get to this point. But yeah, uh, we're, we're almost there. Yeah, it's fine. You'll go back for a PhD and there'll be more. Oh, gosh. I, I, I did say that today. I was like, well, maybe 30 years from now when I'm a professor, I'll have a, a another first day of school. But for all intents and purposes, this is my last first day of school, at least as a student. So uh, exciting times. It is. It's pretty, man, you're not going to know what to do yourself. You're not going to know what to do with yourself with no school on the horizon at the end of this year. I'm just going to go to every Schmodown live event, I think, is what that means. I mean, let me know. I'll be there. I mean, you know, for real, though, like I'm going to I'm going to be making a salary. Who knows what that will be? Uh, but I don't have a family support family to support. Right. Like I, I uh, you're not like Cody. I'm not like Cody Hall now. I know you're not listening, Cody, but congratulations uh, on the birth of his son. I can't remember what the name was, but uh, congratulations to Cody. Big moment. Uh, for him but yeah no yeah I'm, i don't know if i'm ready to become a, a real adult uh man yet but i guess i'm gonna have to uh real adult man i guess i'm gonna have to become one whether i like it or not within the next year so scott if you have the uh, disposable income to go to every schmidt on live i will be there too uh i don't unless uh kirkland and ellis comes knocking which they're not going to but uh, <laughs> all right scott without further ado uh, let's dive into a movie several years in the making. Uh, in fact, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Uh, based on the best-selling novel by Maria Semple, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? tells the story of the Fox family, a well-off clan of three living in Seattle, where Dad Elgin, played by Billy Crudup, is a successful tech genius working at Microsoft. However, everything is not so rosy for Elgin's wife, Bernadette, played by Kate Blanchett, who is going through a midlife crisis after a long hiatus in her career as an acclaimed architect. With a family vacation to Antarctica on the horizon, things start to spiral further out of control for Bernadette and her family, including M. Nelson as daughter B, is forced to come to terms with with the reality of Bernadette's situation, especially after she mysteriously disappears. 
Scott with a popular novel as its source material, a buzzy cast that also includes Kristen Wiig, Lawrence Fishburne, and Troy and Belisario, and the pride of Houston, Texas, Richard Linklater behind the camera. This film has all the makings of a late summer palate cleanser. Is it an intelligent and emotionally satisfying journey, or much like its titular character, does it disappear from your mind without a trace? I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think that I can't say that it was. Well, in some ways, it was emotionally satisfying. I will say, I think towards the end, I did get some emotional payoff. I don't know if the movie totally earned it and deserved it. But as I put in my letterbox review, and I really I feel even more strongly that now that it's it is it has its charming moments, uh, especially towards towards the end as the relation, not even always towards the end, but, you know, sprinkled throughout with the relationship between uh, Bernadette and B. I think that's the highlight of the film for me. And it's in those moments where I really liked Kate Blanchett's character. And, you know, through the entire narrative, I was a huge fan of B. Uh, and I'm already forgetting, I'm sorry, the <laughs> name of the actress. Emma Nelson. This is her first name. Emma Nelson. Yeah, Emma Nelson. I was, I, I really enjoyed her performance. And so, in that sense, there's that one emotional payoff, but I think that unfortunately it's underwhelming in a lot of other areas to the point where did it completely disappear from my mind? No. Was it entirely satisfying in a way that I thought it deserved to be? No is the also probably the answer to that question. So overall, I think it's probably like, I think the annals of history will probably show this as one of the weaker entries in Richard Linklater's, uh, directorial career but it still has its moments i think that i've had a lot of i've had a little bit of time to think about this since i saw this on saturday and we're recording on monday night and i think that this probably just isn't a like i don't i haven't read the books i don't know but this probably just doesn't really fit richard linklater's mo very well i think that it might be safe to say that this is this he doesn't adopt novels (laughs) you know you know what i mean i mean correct me if i'm wrong here he's just that's not his style. I, I I just think that I would be really interested to hear from someone who watched this movie, having read the book to see how much this adheres to the novel, because if it adheres, no. Oh, good. Actually, I had sort of an interesting experience because when I left the movie, so I, there was only two people in the theater. It was myself and an older woman. And as I was leaving the theater, the old, the woman, you know, stopped me and said, you know, I was just curious. We were the only two people in the theater. I, I, you know, I wondered why you came to see this film. And so I explained to her about Richard Linklater and how he's my favorite director and stuff. Uh, And she had read the book and she was making comments about the fact that they, she, she could not remember, but she thought that they had changed the ending. And we, we won't talk about that until we get into spoilers, but uh, she said she wanted to go home and check uh, to see whether the ending was the same because there was something she didn't remember happening in the book. But overall, she seemed to enjoy it. Um, so I don't know. You know, that's just one person, but there is a, a sample size. Yeah, interesting. Because I think that I I just can't imagine a scenario where Richard Linklater doesn't want to put his own creative spin on material. And I just don't know if this material is best suited for that. I don't know what the book was like. I don't know. Uh, obviously, it being a bestseller, it clearly resonated with people who read it. And so I'd be curious to see how this movie, tra- like that, how that translates into Richard Linklater's vision for a film. That being said, like I said, it had its emotional payoff moment and its core central, what I, what I viewed as the core central tenet of the movie, and that's the relationship between this mother and daughter. Uh, I just think that everything around the edges was just really rough. Yeah, I mean, I think, so it, it's interesting to think about this film in the context of Linklater directing it. Like I said, he is my favorite director. Um uh, I adore most of his films, uh, but he does have a very distinctive style. And, and so I think I, I agree with what you're saying, but with one caveat, because I think on paper, this movie does make sense for Linklater to direct because of, uh, you know, the, I think the general thread running through a lot of his best movies, whether it's uh, the Before a Trilogy, whether it's Days and Confused, Boyhood, obviously, everybody wants it. Even, even a movie like School of Rock, uh, they're all about characters who are sort of uh, – making their way through lives, searching for a meaning and a purpose and and trying to find that meaning and purpose through their relationships. And I think that's really sort of one of the major themes at the heart of Where'd You Go, Bernadette? So I think on the page, it makes sense. But I think you're right when you say that Richard Linklater doesn't adapt books, because I think that is kind of one of the central problems here is that uh, it feels like there's a little bit of a tug of war between the film that Linklater wanted to make and you know, the fact that he did have to, to some extent, remain faithful to the source material and that, you know, this has this needs to be a mainstream movie. 
because it was a best-selling novel. And not that Linklater can't make mainstream movies. I mean, School of Rock is a great example, but that was also an original film that he was really able to put his own spin on. And I think what you get in this movie is, obviously, his best movies, in my opinion, have this sort of aimless quality to them, where there's not really any plot going on. You're sort of just experiencing uh, these characters and their relationships. I mean, obviously, that is the entire point of the Before trilogy. You literally just follow these uh, th- this this couple for three movies and you know it's completely dialogue driven completely based on their relationship there's no real plot whatsoever and I think you get sort of moments in that like there's small moments when the the characters are on screen uh, you know and in particular you know you 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 talk about the relationship between uh, Bernadette and B which I agree is the best part of the movie and I really liked uh, Emma Nelson's performance and I think those are the best moments of Kate Blanchett's performance as well because that's what Linklater does well is that, you know, the the intimate scenes between two or three characters, um, you know, really revealing stuff about their relationship. But at the same time, I think there are, you know, it, it, it's almost it's too aimless to support uh, the source material here. And I think that as a result, things which probably made a lot more sense in the book. Uh, I, I was kind of scratching my head about a few things in this movie, uh, which we'll get into. But I think especially uh, the character of Elgin, played by Billy Crudup, I, I didn't understand sort of the reaction that people had to this character, that the other characters had to this character. I don't think that they did a great enough job explaining why exactly this character needed to undergo the arc that he did. Um, and, and just a few other things that I think... Um, there were some loose ends that uh, weren't really tied up. And maybe that's, again, because Linklater wanted to make a sort of different uh, movie that sort of just coasted on these relationships instead and uh, was in a bit of a creative tug of war. You know, I was interested to see sort of, because this movie was in sort of development hell for a while and the release date kept getting pushed back, I was interested to see, you know, what Linklater's relationship would be to it at all once it released and you know he did do press for the movie he has been talking about the movie but i also watched his video on vanity fair where he was sort of going through his career and talking about you know his standout films in great detail uh and then he sort of got to the end about where'd you go bernadette and he's like yeah you know uh megan ellison gave me this book and and i really liked it i really liked the character of bernadette and i think we made a good movie and that was about all he had to say about it. So, you know, I, I don't know if uh, it was just the fact that it was a new movie and he didn't want to say too much about uh, it yet. But, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like this isn't it certainly isn't signature link later. And it doesn't seem like the final package is necessarily something that he's going to uh, want to, you know, hype up in his filmography uh, in the future. But, you know, he he's able to make more out of this than a lot of directors could. Uh, I just wonder if because I do think that the story is good enough here. The characters, you know, could be interesting and are interesting in moments. I think there's a good movie in here somewhere. I just don't know if Linklater was quite the right fit. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this resonates with you at all, but I kept thinking mainly after the movie, but a couple moments during the movie that I thought Wes Anderson maybe could have made a really good version of this movie. And obviously that would have been something more, even more quirky and original than what we get with Linklater here. And probably not something that, you know, the the distributors would have wanted, again, considering it's based on a best-selling novel. But I think the story is is more well-suited, perhaps, to Anderson's sensibilities. Yeah, you went a completely different direction than I would have gone. Yeah. I would have gone more the direction of, like, a Greg Berlanti, who directed Love, Simon last year, and hmm, okay. I think really captured... Well, what would have... I think he would have even more accentuated the situation with B, which is what I cared most about in the film. And I think that he did such a good job with that cast of characters in high school that obviously it's different, but I think that he's, he showed that he could capture that pretty well. Uh, I, I would have gone something, something more mainstream and less auteur probably. Yeah. Well, and, and that's fair. And I, you know, I think that that's probably what, uh, I think ultimately that probably the, the producers and everyone behind this film probably would have preferred that now because the movie isn't doing well at the box office and it isn't getting good uh, critical reviews. And, you know, I, I unfortunately, as much as I love Linklater, I, I understand why. I, I mean, I, I wasn't really s- satisfied by this movie. And I think probably the fact that I am such a big Linklater fan has something to do with it. Um, and maybe, you know, you uh, having only seen a couple of his movies come at it at a different angle and uh, maybe enjoyed it a, a little bit more than I did. I don't know. But I, I, I will say that I don't I wasn't really emotionally satisfied at the end. And I could see, you know, in, in that in a, in a particular climactic scene, I was like, okay, this is supposed to be the big emotional scene, but I don't really feel anything right now. 
and I, and I don't know why, uh, you know, because I think that, you know, like I said, I think the relationship in particular between Bia and Bernadette is, is pretty good. And, uh, you know, the, the climactic scene I'm referring to sort of, um, capitalizes on that. Uh, but I didn't really feel anything. Uh, and I think for a movie like this, uh, you know, that's a big knock on it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably worth just going ahead and jumping in now. But uh, last point on that, I say that I definitely felt something, but it didn't feel like fully baked and it definitely didn't feel like it was deserved. And I do want to emphasize those points because I think that it, it did a fairly poor job with things that weren't just that core relationship between B and Bernadette. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and why don't we move on now and talk about, you know, we're, we're talking a little bit more about the negatives. We've talked about what we liked about the movie, but uh, let's let's talk about what we liked about the movie for a few minutes, because I think there are uh, some charming moments and performances in particular. So uh, are there standout performances? Yeah, no, I, I think that in terms of a standout performance, it has to be Emma Nelson. We haven't seen her in anything before. It's her first role in a movie or in a TV show. I don't know if she was really plucked out of nowhere for this, but playing this character, B Branch, I think that she's wonderful. I mean, she's kind of the the lifeblood heartbeat of this film, uh, largely because I think, like you mentioned, I mostly agree with what you're saying about Billy Crudup's character. And then Kate Blanchett has these nice moments with Emma Nelson, but I honestly, I don't think that she was the right cast, like the right casting decision for that Bernadette role. I think that she's someone who I just couldn't believe was Bernadette. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but Emma Nelson, I think, was spectacular. I think that she really captured what you I think what I wanted to see. And again, I, I haven't read the book, so it's hard to say how it translates necessarily. But she's someone who clearly all these supporting cast members think certain things about Bernadette, about her, about Elgin. And I think that Beast it has been empowered to stand up for herself, even though she's an eighth grader in middle school. And, and I think that that shining role, she really stepped up into that and, and really stood up to people and in that community in certain moments that I, I'm sure that you can recognize that I'm alluding to in a way that I thought she just knocked out of the park. Yeah, I agree that I think she has a standout role here. Um, you know, I've seen a few people criticizing the fact that maybe this character doesn't really have much of an arc that she kind of. Uh, you know, she supports and loves her mother in the beginning and she supports her and loves her mother at the end. But I don't agree with that. First of all, I mean, I, I agree with the fact that, you know, those are her emotions at those points in the movie. But I think that's kind of her arc, right? Like even as, you know, her family is going through this turmoil, her mother is going through this turmoil. She stands by her mother and she's loyal to her mother. However, her idea of what it means to be loyal to her mother also changes, you know, as this is happening. So, while she still, you know, loves her mother, supports her mother, is loyal to her mother in the end, as she was in the beginning, I think she has a different understanding of what it means uh, to do all of those things, to, to, you know, have all of those emotions towards her mother. Uh, so I think it, it's a little bit sim- simplistic to um, say that, oh, she doesn't change. She has no arc in the movie because I don't think that's true. Yeah. And she does change in other ways, too. I mean, she changed like her perspective on going to boarding school, for example, is something that's a, a key part of Absolutely. you know her personal narrative arc that doesn't really necessarily. I mean, all these things interact with other characters, but that's one that's more insular to her. And that's something that changes over the course of the film. So, yeah, I'm I think I'm in your boat with that critique. Yeah, but I think she has a wonderful performance. I mean, such a natural screen presence. It is amazing that this is her first thing we've seen her in, but I am confident that we'll see her in more on the strength of this role. I think she holds her own with a, a sterling cast. And I, you know, I will say, while Kate Blanchett's character did not connect with me um, at a, at every stage of the movie, I think she was a good person for this role. I, I'll, I'll disagree with you there, I guess. Um, because okay. I think that there's a quirkiness and edge to this character that could have been really cringy and could have just really rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, Because I think obviously the character of Bernadette in the movie, people are reacting to her uh, in, in a very negative way. Like a lot of the moms, especially the Kristen Wiig character, um, at least early in the movie, um, they, they hate Bernadette. Um, And I think that, Obviously, we as the audience have to care about Bernadette for the movie to work. Uh, so I think that Kate Blanchett brings a really nice like the the quirkiness that she brings to the character isn't forced. It feels natural. It feels pretty lived in, um, you know, as this character goes. And so I think, uh, you know, she has she has the chops to pull it off. And I think even though the character didn't always work for me, I don't know that her performance was the problem because I think she brought the right 
edge and tone to the performance to where we still cared about this character, even as we understood that she, you know, needed help and that she was uh, troubled for, for various reasons. Um, so it worked for me. Um, and, and I think those are the two standout performances. I think Kristen Wiig has a couple of funny moments as the neighbor. Um, Lawrence Fishburne, really kind of a throwaway role. Same for Troy and Belisaria. They're just kind of these characters who pop up to offer sort of sage advice at various points uh, in Bernadette's journey. And I, I don't know that their their characters really serve much more of a purpose than that. No, I, I think to go back to your, just to give my side of um, my take of why I think Kate Blanchett's a bad casting for this is because when I look on screen and I see Kate Blanchett, there is no part of me that believes, in spite, no matter how good her performance is, there's no part of me that believes that she's this person with, you know, high anxiety, intense depression, you know, whatever might be the instigation is, I just don't believe it when I see it on screen, right? And so it's not that her performance wasn't good, because I think that she did a good job. And it's why those moments with B stand out so much. It's because it's, it's when the the narrative allows her to come out of her shell, like that's the situation she's comfortable with. And she and you can kind of forget about the fact that she's this person who, you know, otherwise doesn't want to leave her house doesn't, you know, doesn't want to do anything outside of the outside of the home, like you have to, you know, she has to, he basically she basically has to be dragged out to go get dinner with her husband and, and things like that. And so I just don't believe it when you put Kate Blanchett in that role. And I think how like, I guess it's, it's complicated, right? Because it's these characters are like, this character is complicated. And and the reason why she's feeling the way that she's feeling is complicated. But I think that it would have been better served having someone who I didn't have other associations with already. Yes. You make a, a very valid point about having the chops to make, to pull this off. Not cringy. I guess I just trust that there's, there's other actresses out there who I don't know and don't already have, know preconceived notions of who they are and, and what to expect from them that could also pull off the role because i trust richard linklater pulling the best out of these characters just like he pulled the best out of you know emma nelson now, obviously we have no idea what her long-term career is going to look like but i have to believe that she's talented and richard linklater pulled the best out of her and so that that's why it didn't necessarily the casting didn't work for me i still think that kate blanchett's performance is good you know, emphasized by those moments where she does get to share the screen with Emma Nelson and have those really intimate mother-daughter moments. There's one in particular that comes to my mind that I'll talk about at the end. But that that's just more where I'm coming from there. Yeah. Well, as far as Emma Nelson goes, like, I don't think there's anyone maybe right now who's better at directing young people, as we've seen, than Richard Linklater is. I mean, it's a hallmark of a lot of his movies. And, uh, you know, the strongest characters in a lot of his movies are the young people. But, uh, you know, I, I don't disagree with you about Blanchett that, it isn't always believable, but I see that more as a failing of the screenplay. And what I mean by that is I think I don't understand. One of the things that I was confused about is I don't understand really what, why the things that are happening in this movie are happening now. Like, because when the movie starts, it seems like they, she's basically been in the same position, uh, you know, for a number of years, right? She's not working. Uh, you know, her husband is very successful um, her daughter is going to school and, um, you know, ha- has this personality. And I think it doesn't make sense why all of the sudden things really start to spiral downward for her. Uh, there's not like a, there's not really an instigating event that spur, you know, spurs on her, her downward spiral, so to speak. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I, I was really confused about why all of a sudden she's falling asleep in the, the pharmacy and, uh, you know, sort of the more off the wall things that that literally cause her family to have an intervention for her. I just didn't get that. I, I felt like something maybe was lost in translation between the book and the movie. And maybe and I, and I think that's more of why I, I didn't necessarily believe the the character in certain moments, because I, I didn't understand why exactly she was acting the way that she was, uh, because it doesn't it didn't seem like anything in her life had really changed all that much from. Uh, you know, the past several years before the, this movie is set. Uh, and so I don't really hold Kate Blanchett and her performance as responsible for that. I, I think that's a fair point as well. I think that you could make some arguments around, you know, B's time in middle school coming to an end in this family vacation. But I still think that I side with your point around, well, Little things like that have come up before, and so there's no reason that it should have bubbled over now other than the fact that it did. And maybe that's just the reality of the story. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, all right, Scott, let's move on, and why don't we talk about maybe some of the some of the bigger problems we had with this movie. Uh, you know, we've been hinting at them some even there in the, the standout section. 
but we haven't talked really about the the Billy Crudup section. And, you know, since I talked about it up front, what I'll say is, and, and we'll get into spoilers now, um, I think the thing that bothered me is that the whole arc of this character is built on the fact that we're supposed to believe that he has stifled his wife's creativity. Um, and, you know, there's this really sort of, I mean, almost grown worthy moment where he like comes to terms with the fact that he he's, Oh yeah, it's awful. I mean, he, yeah. he just literally says the exact, like there, there is no subtlety whatsoever to the moment where he's just like, Oh my gosh, I haven't allowed her to create. Like it's all my fault, but I don't understand why it's all his fault. Like at the start of the movie, we get like a voiceover with Emma Nelson talking about how, you know, or because of that, you know, basically setting the scene that Billy Crudup's character has really caused in a lot of ways, uh, Bernadette Kate Blanchett to, you know, become a recluse to not create. Um, and, you know, as they sort of thud home throughout the movie, like she has to be able to create, that's why she's going in this downward spiral because she's an artist. She's got to be able to create or, uh, what's the phrase that Lawrence Fishburne used? She's going to be a menace to society. Um, and, you know, that's what they hammer home throughout the movie. But so to make that work, you have to believe that Billy Crudup's character actually did force her into that position. And I guess I didn't really get that. Like, I, I think that it's caused more by certain things that happened in her past. And, OK, Billy Crudup's a successful guy working for Microsoft. He's, you know, he's obviously doing very well from himself. He's giving a TED talk in one scene. But they don't make enough of a connection to, you know, maybe the fact that he's been successful uh, has, you know, sort of stifled her in a way. And so I just didn't get that arc at all. And I think that's important to the movie's success. Yeah, I mean, I think the I'm, I'm just putting on my devil's advocate hat because I, I, I 100% agree with what you're saying. But I guess the one argument against that would be his role as a husband is not to not stifle her creation. It's to promote it. And. I guess you could argue that he was, you know, not pushing her to be creative. He wasn't pushing her to sink her time into something that wasn't be, you know what I mean? But otherwise, again, I think that's a big reach too, because I I agree with you. It doesn't make any, it's weird because, and I'm, and I'm almost confused, like towards the end of the film when he's having this revelation, like I failed, I failed my wife. And I'm just like, I mean, I, I guess, but it's also like, you weren't, it's not like you were, you were like telling her to stay at home. Yeah. Like she, like the sequence of events I understood, right? Like, you know, you have this person next door when she's building the 20 mile house that moves in and like causes her this trauma, this trauma to her creative career or whatever. And she like runs away from that. And, and in that sense stifles creativity, but he didn't, I don't, I mean, the movie doesn't leave me with the impression that he was responsible for that. It's like he obliged her. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it, it, it's really weird. And uh, you know, even the moment, where he you know comes to terms with what he's done um what he's apparently done like the i don't the the moment before it that prompts him to make this realization didn't work for me either you know involving this story for the from the past uh between the two of them i i didn't get why all of a sudden what he hasn't realized in the last eight ten years however long it's been all of a sudden it all comes rushing to him in this incredible moment of clarity you just haven't been there before yeah, I guess not. Oh, and something else that bothered me, talking about the 20-mile house part, there is a lot of exposition in this movie that is handled in not a very uh, subtle way. Like, And I think this is one of the... Maybe this is one of the areas where we see that Linklater is not as good at, at adapting books because obviously books have a... You know, leave a lot more they room expository. for... <laughs> exposition to breathe, right? Like, we a lot of the stuff we we get about Bernadette's background probably would have been fleshed out over the course of a 400 page novel. But because this isn't a 400 page novel, we watch a YouTube video for like 10 minutes. That is, you know, just all about Bernadette's past. Uh, like it's basically like a history channel biography of her. And Bernadette is the one watching it. And so, so I mean, it, it just feels like a very shoehorned in way to like get all this story and that we obviously need to, to understand Bernadette's arc. Um, but that they couldn't they couldn't really afford to do over the course of, uh, you know, a, as they would in, in a novel. And, you know, voiceover, I think, serves its purpose as well um, in certain moments of the movie. And so, again, I think this is maybe where some of Linklater's shortcomings as at, at adapting uh, this book are, are demonstrated. Yeah, I, I agree. The Elgin's character is 
is rough. And then I think there's a lot of loose ends. I think you were alluding to them at the beginning, but there's a lot of loose ends attached to this character as well and attached to the community, right? I mean, you talk about Kristen Wiig um, and then a bunch of other roles that were throwaway. And I would lump in Kristen Wiig's performance as throwaway too, because that, I mean, there's barely any closure on that. There's barely any closure on Elgin's assistant, who's also friends with Kristen Wiig. Like, it just, I, I don't know if the book leaves a lot of loose ends too. Uh, I would assume that it wouldn't. Maybe, maybe those scenes just got left on the cutting room floor. But yeah, I think that this character just showed a lot of weak. It's like pretty much the focal point of the weak links. All, all weak links tie back to Elgin. Yeah. Well, is there anything you want to say also about the subplot with the FBI agent and the fact that that Bernadette has been communicating with this person from a company that isn't real and that they've stolen her identity and they're coming to America to, uh, you know, steal all of these people's identities. Uh, I, that just didn't really seem to fit very well in the movie to me with what the movie is clearly trying to say about creativity. And uh, it, it just seemed like, you know, again, a way to, to force this intervention scene uh, that we obviously have to get to spur on Bernadette's disappearance. Yeah, I mean, looking back, it, you you would be forgiven for completely forgetting that subplot too, because yeah. it's like played for jokes at the beginning of the movie, and then gets serious as a part of this intervention. But the thing is, it's like it's serious enough. I mean, from my perspective, at least, like it's serious enough where you could have had the intervention without any of this subplot, right? Like you could have had. You don't need the FBI agent there to have the intervention. You could have had Judy Greer as the doctor in there, and you could have yep. had his secretary. And I think the scene would have been. Although I do, I think the FBI agent was actually kind of funny. But, um, but yeah, no, I I agree. It it it's just, and tonally too, they don't get. I mean, the fact that the FBI agent is funny kind of like screws things up. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the last thing I want to talk about, and I think we can probably say very quickly because we've, we've sort of already shown our hand, but as far as where this movie stands among uh, Linklater's oeuvre, uh, obviously very accomplished, a very acclaimed director, um, hasn't won an Oscar, but maybe that uh, just shows that he's, uh, he's too special. Um, but I know you've only seen a couple of his movies. I, I imagine I know where this one is going to rank, but um, where do you think this movie really fits into his, uh, his lexicon? Yeah, I mean, I haven't I haven't um, seen even a good chunk of his movies, if I'm being fair. I've really only seen two or three, but this one's definitely at the bottom of the list. I haven't like even I, I again, I'm sure he has movies that are weaker and and I've only seen some of the best. It's fair to say. So maybe it's being a little unfair to the movie and yeah. you'll probably be a better judge. They're all the best. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But but for me, it was is the weakest Linklater movie that I've seen. And I'd have to agree. I mean, like, uh, he is my favorite director. I can't say that I've seen every single movie that he's done. Um, there's still a couple holes I have in there, I guess. But this is my least favorite of the movies he's done. I mean, th- I think everything else is just such a high high, whether it's, you know, going all the way back to the start of his career with a movie like Days and Confused. I think the different eras have been interesting. I mean, he was on such a roll uh, with movies like before, with you know, with Before Midnight, which was obviously the conclusion of the uh, before a trilogy back in 2013 and then one year later you had boyhood and then two years later you had everybody wants some i mean a- an incredible hot streak like one of the greatest hot streaks any filmmaker has ever pulled off uh and then but then now he's done last flag flying and this movie which i think uh have a lot more mainstream sensibility so i want him to to find his antarctica um before this next movie because i think uh he needs to get back to what he does best and i i don't think that you know, again, I don't think that making a movie with mainstream sensibilities is necessarily like bad for him because he's shown he can do it in movies like uh, School of Rock and Me and Orson Welles, which is a movie that I love. Uh, one, may, probably his most underrated movie for me. Um, but I, I just think that adapting the book, um, adapting this particular book at least, uh, didn't mesh well with his directorial style. Uh, and I think he would be well served to uh, resort to the kind of films that uh, he's, you know, made a name off of. So bottom of the list, but even, you know, even the worst Linklater movie has its virtues um, and is far better than the the worst movie or my least favorite movie in, in most directors' uh, lexicons. I, I just want, I wonder if movies like, if he, if movies like School of Rock would be as popular today as they were 15 years ago, I, I think he maybe is just having a hard time 
matching yeah. up his directorial sensibilities with what is mainstream today and also, you know, getting those projects funded. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. Um, because Linklater, you know, he has said that like when he made School of Rock, he was like, I want this to be my big budget comedy because like he wa- he wasn't uh, he wasn't satisfied with a lot of what he was seeing in Hollywood comedies at the time. So he was like, I want to make a Hollywood comedy and see if I can do it uh, because, you know, my movies are funny, but they're not, uh, you know, mainstream funny. So I want to see if I can do it. And he did. I mean, School of Rock is a fin- fantastic movie. Um, but I just don't know if that if he would even go down that road again, wh- whether the market was, uh, you know, amenable to it or not, um, because I think he sort of got that over and done with. But I definitely see with what you're see what you're saying that this type of comedy, you, you know, maybe with if you got the equivalent of Jack Black uh, today, like the equivalent of mid 2000s Jack Black today, maybe star power could uh, get it over the hill, but you know Hollywood comedies, with the exception of something like Jumanji, which has a lot of star power, they aren't really doing numbers. Uh, okay, Scott, why don't we move into our wrap up phase now? Favorite scene or moment from Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Yeah, my favorite scene is one as I've alluded to the entire episode between Bernadette and and B, and it's this little moment where they're in the car. I think they're she's driving to school or from school. I'm not sure which it is, but they're just jamming to this song and the, and you just see this really authentically raw moment uh it, it's a snippet of what you'd expect an entire richard linklater movie to be about and i saw it in glimpses right here is one of those moments i forget the song that they're jamming out to but it's a it's a beautiful 45 seconds to a minute on screen and the, it just brought a a huge smile to my face and i just couldn't help but kind of nod along with the music and just really revel in the performance of Kate Blanchett and Emma Nelson. Yeah. Time after time is the song. Um, ah, yes, that's, but yeah, something else Linklater is incredibly good at directing scenes of people jamming to music in the car. Um, the, the rapper's delight sequence from everybody wants some is truly a joy to watch. Uh, every time I watch that movie, which is very often, um, (laughs) I'll go with another moment uh, between these two characters, and it's the scene where there's sort of a confrontation that occurs between Kristen Wiig's character um, and the two of them after Bernadette has sort of deliberately uh, or perhaps with with reckless abandon caused this mudslide to take out like the bottom floor of Kristen Wiig's house. Um, And, you know, so there's a big confrontation that ensues. Kristen Wiig, you know, really sort of uh, says exactly what she's feeling. Uh, about Bernadette and Bernadette tries to to fight back, but her sort of flippancy isn't really uh, matching the conversation well. And then, you know, a, a pivotal moment, I think, is when Kristen Wiig starts trying to, you know, talk about how B sees her mom. And, and that's when Emma Nelson as B steps in and really, you know, sort of calls uh, Kristen Wiig out, you know, and saying, hey, like, don't put words in my mouth. Like, you know, you feel this way about my mom, but you don't understand where I'm coming from you know, I want to go to boarding school. Obviously she, she figures out she doesn't in the end, but in that moment she does want to go to boarding school and not just because her mom has forced her into it or because she, she wants to get away from her mom, which is what Kristen Wiig is suggesting. Uh, and it's a really, really good acting by all three parties in that scene. So. Yep. A beautiful scene. All right, let's put a score on it. You know, I wish I could give it a higher score, but unfortunately I cannot 4.7. Yeah. I, I am a little bit higher again, maybe if Richard Linklater didn't direct this. It's a weird place. To, it's a weird place to be in, right? Because I feel like I'm holding it to a higher standard because it is a Linklater movie. But Maybe, at the same yeah. time, because it is a Linklater movie, I don't feel right giving it a bad score because uh, because it's still Richard Linklater. So I will be a little bit higher, really not that much higher, but 5.7 uh, is where I'm coming out. Okay. It, it's difficult to say, if though, if that would be my score if this was directed by someone different. All right, Scott, uh, that should just about do it for our review of Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Uh, When we come back, we will be talking about a couple of news stories uh, with the primary focus on uh, the big story over the past couple of weeks, which is the cancellation of Craig Zobel's movie, The Hunt. Uh, So we'll be talking about the implications of that after the break. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. All right, Scott, we're going to get to a few news items here. You know, it's been a bit since our last episode, and so there's been a lot of news that's happened. We 
just simply can't cover it all. So we're going to focus on just a couple of big stories here uh, and starting out with the biggest story that has happened. Uh, and that is the fate of this movie called The Hunt, uh, directed by Craig Zobel. You know, this is a movie which has actually been on our radar uh, for some time, probably hasn't been on a lot of other people's radars uh, just because, you know, it's a low budget Blumhouse uh, horror film. Although I, I will say, I don't know if you noticed this the other day, Scott, but this was sort of a tweet that I saw from someone uh, pointing out that sort of very quietly Universal has now hit a billion for the year, basically just releasing like mid-budget comedies like Yesterday and Good Boys, which are out now, and Blumhouse movies. Now, granted, one of those was Us, which obviously was was a huge hit, but um, still, the fact that they were able to to reach the, those heights suggests that, you know, maybe The Hunt would have actually done decent numbers at the box office because I think Blumhouse has at least uh, become a, a well-known commodity to horror fans. But they're putting this movie, they were, were going to put this movie out. It is a riff on The Most Dangerous Game, uh, which of course is a famous short story about uh, people being hunted for sport. Um, and this movie was going to be sort of a modern day spin on that uh, with sort of the rednecks and the elite going at it. Um, and prior to the movie being canceled, President Trump had already come out and made some comments about the movie and how, you know, it was disgusting that, um, you know, the the conservatives were i can't remember who who is it that's being hunted in the movie is it the elites or the rednecks rednecks right so the rednecks are being hunted and so president trump had come out to to you know to suggest that this was a a liberal fantasy and disgusting and uh you know people needed to uh you know boycott and protest this movie Uh, and universal responded by just pulling the movie all together and saying we're not going to release this and you know, there are a lot of things that go into this, Scott. Obviously, this is very politically charged. Um, I, I guess a couple of things for me is that I, I, on the one hand, I think, and, you know, th- we'll talk about this, but I think that this sends a dangerous precedent as far as like government censorship and uh, the the role that that government plays in, you know, silencing dissenters, uh, you know, if this movie is even supposed to be a dissenter, right? Like Craig Zobel has come out today and suggested that, no, the movie is a lot, to, to no one's surprise, that the movie is a lot more uh, even-handed than people on either side of the aisle have given it credit for. Because, you know, when when the movie was canceled, a lot of people on the left then were coming out and saying, oh, actually, you know, this is, uh, you know, sort of the other way around. Like the, the, the rednecks are being portrayed as the heroes. Like, can't you see that the elites are actually the villains in this movie? Uh, but yeah, to no one's surprise, the movie is more nuanced than that, especially since it's written by uh, Damon Lindelof, creator of Lost, Leftovers, um, you know, v- very accomplished in the world of TV and, and known for his complex, complex TV shows. And so I, I, I am very troubled about the implications of, you know, the, the government, the role of the government played in this and the sort of censorship that has gone on here. At the same time, you know, I understand Universal's perspective of, especially with the mass shootings that have happened recently, with the fact that movie theaters are, you know, sometimes can be a breeding ground for mass shootings. And the fact that Trump had already come out and said, you know, was putting his supporters on notice about this movie. I I do sympathize with Universal perhaps being concerned. And and I I have to think that this probably went into the decision also. Being concerned with uh, the possibility of some sort of incident happening, um, you know, in a theater because of this movie and because of what President Trump said. Um, but Scott, I want to get your thoughts on this because obviously there's a lot to break down here. Yeah, there is a lot to break down. And I, I think generally I, I'd agree. I think this sets a really bad precedent and maybe we can talk about maybe some of the fallout from that. We're already seeing with a movie like Jojo rabbit and the Disney and how Disney, uh, that's obviously a Disney movie. Uh, well, it's a Fox searchlight movie, which now of course is owned by Disney. And there's some rumblings that have been going on in the wake of the cancellation of, the hunt, which we can talk about in a minute. But to focus on the hunt, I think that it really is concerning because it just feels like uh, a lightning rod for people to complain for for to for right for conservatives or I mean Trump conservatives, even not even real conservatives, like Trump conservatives to complain yes. about about these things, which they're already complaining about, right? And they're just using that as a focal point for their arguments, when in reality it's really you know, it's, it's just a fake, you know, it's a scarecrow. It's, it's not even real, right? Because anyone who had seen a screening of this movie would be able to tell you that that's not what this film was about. And if you even watch the trailer, it doesn't look like what the movie is about because 
the movie looks like it's about these people who are being hunted, these rednecks uh, who these lib- – like, I mean, of course we can we can interface liberal on top of the elites here. The elites hunting conservatives. But the entire trailer shows how, okay, it's the conservatives fighting back. And just, I mean, a presumption I think inherent there is that they would in some way win, right? They are like – you, like you said, they're the heroes of the movie. The liberal elite are the villains as those people are pointing out. And I think that the quotes from Craig Zobel talking about how – you know, it's supposed to poke at both sides of the aisle. It's supposed to be a, a movie about how we are unable to work together and partisanship uh, reigns supreme, which is an, <laughs> very appropriate satire because I think people on both sides of the aisle would say that, well, we're not able to work together to complete common goals, right? I think that's an, an ongoing issue in, in government, no matter which side of the aisle you fall on. And so I think that the fact that it's being used as this lightning rod to validate you know, a liberal elite Hollywood who's out of touch with people and really wants to like, you know, get rid of conservative, like poorer. I mean, an implication being Southern poor conservatives. Uh, it's just, it's total bullshit. I mean, it's just total bullshit. And, you know, it's totally fine to have, you know, you watch that movie and you have that opinion and you feel that way about it. That's awesome. Talk about it. But the fact that someone like the president is taking is using the presidential platform to, tell people to not to i mean it's fine i mean I, I guess you shouldn't be using the presidential platform to say don't go see a movie uh you shouldn't be doing that kind of that sort of censorship to your point it's one of those things where you know when you're saying things about to that censor things in a way that convince a movie studio to not release it because yes i they had already pulled the marketing campaign of the movie after the three school you know the three shootings in a weekend they pulled the marketing campaign and I'm sure they were debating, all right, is this the right time to release this movie already? And I just think that that Trump's comments on the matter probably were the last nail in the universal pictures coffin of this movie. Right. And, and that just kind of saw the movie on its way. And it's, it's a real shame. I think that there are very valid reasons why related to shootings, why, okay, maybe, maybe this wouldn't have been a good thing to release, you know, in this political climate at this time, you know, juxtaposed with these shootings. That could be true, but the context of how it actually got canceled looks really bad, in my opinion, and I just don't think that we should be canceling these types of movies, which are supposed to inspire conversation, like legitimate, real conversation with satire, right? With a really, you know, what I would have assumed would have been an an incisive and scathing satire of our current political climate on both sides. And I'm sure that liberals who go see the movie will have one perspective that conservatives would have another perspective but hopefully the point of the movie would be that you could then talk about those perspectives and you know whether or not any any productive conversation happens is probably another story but that's the point of the film and the fact that this sort of the context again to go back to the context the context of it is that you know essentially trump telling you know this movie you shouldn't go see this movie it's you know liberal liberal late hollywood shitting on conservatives uh it, it, it's it feels really it feels really wrong i mean creators make these movies you know whether they're total garbage the worst movie you've ever seen or a hundred metacritic movies people should see them and have and form their own opinions about them right like e- even a movie like what was it whatever that who's the crazy right director who released a movie last year that compared trump dinesh d'souza yeah dinesh d'souza's movie from last year whose name i can't even can't even remember. I can't even remember the name of the movie. But like that was released in theaters. And, you know, there weren't any liberal political figures saying that, you know, whatever distributor released the movie shouldn't have released the movie. And I wouldn't even say the two shouldn't release the movie. They should have released the movie and people should have seen it if they wanted to see it and formed their own opinions about it. I formed my own opinion without having seen it, which is maybe makes me a bad movie critic. I don't know. But I didn't see the movie. I didn't want to see the movie. And that's fine. And if you did, if the hunt was released and you didn't want to see it, that's fine, too. That's totally OK. But I just don't think this is the right way to go about that. Again, maybe it already wasn't the right time for this movie to be released, given the context of the mass shootings. But the other side of the coin of the context of the comments about its political agenda just felt really off base. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, and and I'm sure this was his objective, like I don't think that people, the people speaking out about this would have even known that this movie existed if it wasn't for Trump's comments. Um and, you know, it, it is a shame because who knows, like, that to intelligent moviegoers, you know, this movie might have actually, you know, opened some minds, opened some doors uh, about the the problem of partisanship. It, it's hard to know, obviously, without seeing the movie. It, it is a genre movie. It's a Blumhouse release. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say that it's Schindler's List here, but uh, 
who who knows like what it could have done the the effect that it could have had on viewers and you know the people who are speaking out about it on either side of the aisle again are, probably weren't going to see the movie and are probably too dumb to understand the nuance anyway um so the movie's not for them uh and that well, I go even further and say I imagine they do understand the nuance, but their political, but it just doesn't line up with their political yeah, agenda. I mean, that's that's yeah. Um, you're you're probably right about that. But to touch on what you you also brought up the Jojo Rabbit stuff that's going over at Disney, and you know what we see there is basically that Disney is expressing some concern about uh, Jojo Rabbit, which is of course Taika Waititi's uh, new film that's going to be released in a couple months. Um, and whether, you know, it is going to mesh well with the studio's image and is going to reach Disney's, uh, audience, um, you know, their built in audience that they pretty much have for a lot of movies. And I mean, I, I, you know, primarily this is probably because of the role that Hitler plays in the movie, um, as the imaginary friend of the main character. Um, and, and Scott, you know, I, I think it is worth talking about in this conversation, although it is difficult to know whether Disney is really concerned about the political uh, connotation of this movie or whether it's strictly a business, uh, you know, they don't think that, uh, this movie is going to do box office numbers, which, okay, it's not going to do the box office numbers that every other Disney release has done this year. But, uh, I think, you know, it, it, that doesn't, that shouldn't have that big of an effect on whether the movie is released or not under the Disney name, because look, it's a Taika Waititi movie. Like it's gotten good marketing. People are talking about this movie. I think, if you're not going to allow this movie to be released under the Disney name, then what original movies are you ever going to release under the Disney name? Uh, because I think, you know, th- this movie, it could actually do quite well um, as opposed to, you know, s- you know, other original movies that are out there. Um, and so I think it's difficult to know exactly what angle Disney is coming at this from. I mean, I'm sure the business side of it is playing a big role, but, you know, perhaps the political side too, uh, with the role that Hitler plays in this movie. But, I am bothered by this because I think Disney obviously has so much power in the the film industry right now, and they have the power to advance movies like, you know, like original movies like Jojo Rabbit um, and get them to a wider audience than they might otherwise see. Um, And I doubt, you know, which which studios this being. I mean, I understand it's Disney like, but uh, who is the distributor of this? Of The Hunt? No, of Jojo Rabbit. Fox Searchlight. Fox Searchlight, right. So, I mean, Fox Searchlight is sort of putting these movies out anyway. Um, I think that it's weird. I mean, obviously, because Disney has just acquired Fox Searchlight. But um, I, I think it's weird for Disney to to come out and say, oh, we don't think this movie is going to be successful because like Fox Searchlight has had success just because they're under the Disney name. Now, I mean, people probably don't even know that like this, the Walt Disney name is not appearing in the trailers for Jojo rabbit. Uh, so it's just a confusing situation all around. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't imagine the Disney castle will show up before any Fox Searchlight movie. Yeah, it's yeah. Just not how I would expect it's it a ever different to audience. Like they shouldn't expect to get the same audience. Yeah. It, I mean, I mean, just <laughs> we're being around the bush here, but just to be explicit for maybe members of our audience who aren't familiar, but like, Fox Searchlight, known for their award-winning movies, not their billion-dollar movies. Yeah. Right? Like, you talk about it not being a winner of the scale of Disney, and that's right, because I'd be shocked if any Fox Searchlight film has ever made more than, like, a quarter million dollars. I, I'm, I'm probably missing one that's really obvious, and I'll Google it later and edit this part out, probably. But, no, like, it would shock me, because, like, every single year, they release award contenders. Like, I don't even know the last time a Fox Searchlight movie in a year wasn't nominated for Best Picture. I'm sure like every single year they have one that's nominated for Best Picture. But that's the point. Like, that is that banner. So so here's what I'm seeing. The favorite, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, Brooklyn, the Grand Budapest Hotel, Beast of the Southern Wild, The Descendants, The Tree of Life. Yeah. I mean, all these movies are nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, exactly. So Fox Searchlight, is that's what they're known for. Like, if you're Disney, you don't, I mean, uh, granted, you, you acquired the, the whole umbrella of Fox. I get it. Maybe you didn't buy Fox for Fox Searchlight. I would assume that at least, but like you have Fox Searchlight and you're not going to be distributing movies under Fox Searchlight with the intention of making a billion dollars. Now, maybe the political climate, this doesn't mesh well, you know, with Hitler being in your movie doesn't mesh well with your audience. That's fine. Whatever. I I get that. I I also think that it could also be blowing comments out of proportion. It was rumored that one executive openly voiced these comments in a screening of Jojo Rabbit. And again, it's one executive. We don't know who that executive was, what power they have over the distribution process. But I think that in it, it coming in the wake of this cancellation of the hunt, it feels directly affected. And this is the exact kind of thing 
that is seriously concerning because as much as we can maybe understand the hunt, at least it being delayed, right, for the context of the mass shootings, this conversation around Jojo Rabbit, it, I don't I don't understand whatsoever, right? Like that, it seems like a business decision if they were to not release this film. And Fox Searchlight doesn't make decisions about movies. That banner, banner movies you're releasing under that banner, they don't make decisions about movies because of the amount of money it's going to make. They release movies based on their awards consideration. And uh, and that's why, I mean, that's what you would leverage. And to jump in there, Fox like a lot of times awards consideration will really boost a box office for a movie like Green Book was a hu- became a huge hit last year after it won Best Picture. Um, and, you know, looking further into this, Fox Searchlight also had The Shape of Water, Birdman and 12 Years a Slave, all which won Best Picture and all which I imagine, you know, picked up some box office steam because of uh, their. I mean, The Shape of Water. Definitely. Yeah. definitely. Um, and so it, it just doesn't make sense. Like it also you know, going back to the business angle of it and, and bringing back in, you know, that tweet that I saw about Universal making a billion off of, you know, Blumhouse movies and they also had uh, How to Train Your Dragon and Fast and Furious Hobbs and Shaw. So okay, but but still, I think that what that that has shown uh, is that you can do numbers. You just like you can't expect to do you know the the numbers that every Disney movie has done this year. Uh, You can't expect to do one billion with every movie. But if you market the movies, if you market the movies well, um, then you can overperform you can overachieve uh with these you know mid-budget original movies um and still achieve commercial success while still having all of the big budget stuff that you know disney is going to be uh making a plunder off of from here to kingdom come yeah so aladdin toy story 4 and the lion king all made a billion you know the both captain marvel and endgame obviously so like they're at a their hit rate for billion is absurd right like they probably have every movie that's made a billion i'm trying to there might be i oh well I, I think that there might be another movie that made a billion this year besides uh those ones that we've already mentioned but the point is they're just in terms of box office gross they, they're totally dominant and if they start making decisions around studios like fox searchlight based on those that kind of decision making i just fear for the kinds of movies that fox searchlight is producing because you know we'd see them they're, those movies are just going to have to go elsewhere, right? And and that's, that's unfortunate because Fox Searchlight, you know, is willing to throw money behind projects without the guarantee of making their money back. They, I mean, and before that was because you know bigger, you know, bigger revenue movies at Fox were funding those uh, and funding the awards consideration. And it'll just again, I don't want to blow it too out of proportion because I'm sure there are probably cooler heads in the room than that and larger context for even if this doesn't gel with the typical Disney audience. It makes a lot of sense to keep those movies because is, you know, like it or not Avengers Endgame is not going to be nominated for best picture. Right. I might argue that it may be worth it. And maybe I'll be wrong. I think this maybe it'll get nominated for best I mean, black picture. Panther got nominated. So it's a different, I think kind, of a different chance, kind of movie. Yeah. There's a chance, but it's a different kind of movie, but like Aladdin is not going to be nominated for best picture. The Lion King is not going to be nominated for best picture. Toy Story 4 is not going to be nominated for best picture. It'll be net nominated for best animated feature, but it will not get nominated for best picture. And Fox Searchlight will something they will put out this year, whether it's Jojo Rabbit or another movie, will probably get nominated for Best Picture. And it seems like that Disney could would do well to silence a lot of this rhetoric that people, you know, people are criticizing them for this. Obviously, like if they yeah. if they put out a movie that even just one movie that was like a Best Picture nominee, you know, performed at some of the award shows, like I think that would silence some of the the detractors and say, hey, look, okay, they're putting out all these big budget franchise movies. But they're also putting out a quality awards contender here. Yeah, I mean, because Fox Searchlight later this year, I mean, they, they've had the aftermath already this year and Tolkien, which is kind of a, a not, it's not a documentary, but a fictionalized documentary, I guess. But they have Ready or Not coming out this coming week. They have Lucy in the Sky, Jojo Rabbit and A Hidden Life. I have no idea what A Hidden Life is, but I imagine that's the that's the Terrence Malick movie. OK, yeah, well, that I mean, Terrence Malick is hit and miss, but. Jojo Rabbit or Lucy in the Sky. Like, uh, yes, it, it, Lucy in the Sky is a is a hallmark of the you piss genre, but emotionally withdrawn people in space. But it probably will still be in convers- awards conversations. And so it's just like, why? Yeah. And, and to be to be honest with you, I think Hidden Life could also get in there just because, yeah, it's Malik. But also this movie is about like a a German during World War Two who like will refuses to sympathize with the Nazis. And so it has that sort of historical 
angle on it that the Academy mm, really yeah. seems to go for. And any of those three movies you named that are right, like Lucy, Jojo Rabbit, or Hidden Life, those could all be awards contenders. Yeah, and last year, I mean, yes, of course, the favorite was the big awards contender, but they also had Can You Ever Forgive Me? They had The Old Man and the Gun, which got good reviews, though I didn't see it. They had Isle of Dogs. Like, good movies. <laughs> they're, they're, they have a small handful of movies, which are all in awards consideration. And that's the reason why you have these movies. And if these are... The, if you're making billions of dollars in other movies and you're not redirecting some of those funds to, to fund these movies, then I start to have a problem. To an extent, it's fine to make these Disney remakes to make to call it half cash grab, half, you know, cr- like recreative license, whatever you want to call it. Like, however you fall on that spectrum, of, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I, I know that you lean more towards the cash grab. But like, if you're not making those movies to fund movies like this, then I have less patience. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there, and you know I'm not sure there's there's much more we can add. I, I think uh, I think our listeners at this point probably know where we stand. They're on all this. gone. And we don't have any listeners at this point. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all gone. Like you said, at this point, it, we're kind of just play the waiting game with this. Hopefully, it will just be so this was sort of blown out of proportion, and this will be a non-story, and you know Jojo Rabbit will come out and do well. Yeah. So with that, let's hit a couple other uh, short stories, Scott, before we uh, sign off. Also in the Disney world, um, Disney has announced that they are going to be packaging Disney Plus um, with a couple of their other properties, uh, specifically Hulu and ESPN Plus. Uh, is it $15 a month? $13. $13 a month. Uh, you're going to get all three of these uh, wonderful services. Um, Scott, you're more attuned to the business side of things. Uh, do you have any uh, galaxy brain takes about this? I don't know if I have any galaxy brain takes, but <laughs> I am thrilled as a consumer for this because I was already thinking yep. about, I already have Hulu. I definitely was going to get Disney plus and I was thinking about subscribing to ESPN plus. So the fact that I can get all of this for $1 more than I currently pay for Hulu is great. <laughs> it's great for me as a consumer. Yeah. And I have ESPN plus and Hulu at this particular moment. But uh, I think we're going to be signing up for a joint Disney Plus account, Scott, perhaps. So maybe this will maybe this will mean I can cancel um, my ESPN Plus or Hulu. Actually, I think they're both my brothers and I just mooch off of him. So maybe he can cancel. I don't know. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I'm excited about, uh, you know, the possibilities of this. I think that there's good content on all of these services, obviously Disney Plus with we've talked at great length about all the stuff that they're putting out. Hulu, I think, is doing some interesting stuff that you're not seeing on other streaming services. And ESPN Plus, you know, uh, obviously will only appeal to sports fans, but, um, you know, they've got... They're hiding too much soccer behind that paywall. They've got a ton of soccer on there. They've got mid-major college basketball on there. (laughs) They've got, even this year, they've added some select MLB games uh, through MLB TV. So... And they also have the entire backlog backlog of uh, a 30 for 30. So there's a lot of good stuff on ESPN plus as well. And uh, I hope that this plan is going to uh, turn more people onto that. It definitely will for me. All right. Final story to hit Scott. We, we first heard the, we first got a rumor for this uh, in the past couple of days. And then it was pretty much confirmed uh, that we are also at Disney plus. We're going to be getting an Obi-Wan series um, starring, starring Ewan McGregor uh, reprising his role as Obi-Wan from the prequels. Um, Scott, I'm excited about this. You know, we've teased this, uh, on recently, but we will be doing a star Wars series in the build up to rise of Skywalker, rewatching all the movies. We've rewatched a couple of them. And I, I do think that Ewan McGregor's performance as Obi-Wan is one of the best things about the prequels. Uh, so I'm glad he's going to be getting another opportunity here to reprise this role. Cause there's so many stories that have yet to be told in the star Wars universe. And we don't know what the story uh, of this series is going to focus on, but uh, I think this is, you know, going to be a great addition alongside uh, Mandalorian and Cassian Andor, which have already been announced. Yeah, I mean, I don't know when this series is going to come. I imagine it's probably a couple of years off if we're being honest with ourselves, but it's awesome. I can't wait. I'm thoroughly excited. I'm on board with your take that Ewan McGregor is one of the best parts of the prequel trilogy. Stay tuned. Uh, starting in October, we'll start to have that countdown towards episode nine. Uh, we'll be rewatching all those Star Wars movies, including the uh, Star Wars story, the two Star Wars story movies. But yeah, I couldn't be more excited about this news because it was a huge bummer that when they canceled the Star Wars stories anthology series movies after Solo's kind of box office failure, that you know the the Ewan McGregor Obi Wan spinoff was one of those ones that was long rumored to be in that anthology series. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we would be getting and the fact that that was canceled 
whether this is now being adapted for Disney Plus into a mini series. Now that may be, so maybe it's closer than we think because of whatever stage it might have been in the production, in the pre-production process for that movie, because it was rumored for so long. But I just I couldn't be more thrilled because that was the one of the biggest bummers of those anthology movies being canceled. Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like, you know, the other one of the other ones that was canceled was Boba Fett. And maybe we'll get some of that story in Mandalorian. Um, we will see. So I was saying I don't think we'll be getting any of that story in the Mandalorian based on what I know about that TV show. But I think that it wouldn't surprise me at all for us for us to get a Boba Fett disney plus yeah. series it was because of he's such a fan yeah character. that is true I, I personally i've never understood the appeal so maybe that's where i'm looking at it from he's never been one of my favorite characters but he is a fan favorite you're right i think it's mostly yeah. from the novels i mean there there are so many canon novels out there um that i just have never even explored so uh you're probably right about well they're most of them aren't canon now is that true okay i thought a lot of like claudia gray ones were still but i i i haven't kept up so i haven't either but i thought that they wiped everything from the canon, I mean, before episode look, seven, if they're not going to adapt any of them, I guess they might as well. But I, I say it's a shame that they're not even considering adapting any of them. All right, Scott. Well, we praised Disney there a little bit in the the last couple stories, so I think we're coming out at least net neutral, maybe net positive on them. Uh, I think they'll forgive us for. Uh, the first part of the news segment. But uh, that should just about do it for this week's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, Scott Work and our lovely listeners find you on Twitter. At Shelton 2013 And I am at Scarvy Dent. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you would like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Uh, if you can't support us on Patreon, that's okay too. Just don't forget to write, like, rate and review uh, and subscribe to our podcast on apple podcasts or wherever else you are listening to this and i'm scott harvey for scott shelton we'll see you next time thanks for listening